gun sales surge in October, plus an interview with mass shooting researcher Michael Rope on the failures in the lead up to the recent attack in Maine. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. We send you one email a week every Friday to keep you informed. And of course, you can always buy a membership if you want to go a little bit deeper than the free email and get an even greater understanding of what's happening with exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you will not find anywhere else. you also get this podcast a day early. This week, we are discussing the recent shooting in Maine and the, frankly, disturbing failures to disarm the suspected shooter, uh, despite his significant mental health background um, and, and some of the uh, incidents that he was involved with, including potentially involuntarily involuntary commitment. So um, in order to do that, I wanted to bring on somebody who's an expert in both mass shootings and Maine's gun laws. And that is why we have Bates College Professor Michael uh, Roke on with us today. Welcome to the show, Professor. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on. We always like to get somebody who um, is an expert in these topics, who can bring something more to the table than what I have to offer. And so that's, uh, you know, I was looking around and, and I thought you were ideal for this. Uh, and in fact, can you just tell people a little bit more about your background and some of your research that you've done on the topic? Sure. So I was born and raised in Maine, uh, the capital city in Augusta. Um, I left for school and came back uh, to work at the Maine Department of Corrections. I was the director of research there for um, just a little bit and then moved on to Bates College, which is located in Lewiston, Maine. And uh, I have been studying mass shootings for, for a number of years now. Um, I started focusing mostly on school shootings. Um, that, was, that was an interest of mine really because I was in high school when Columbine happened, and that was just such a turning point in terms of media coverage, in terms of just our understanding of, of these types of events, the deadliness, uh, so on. And so I, I was looking at it from a sociological perspective as a sociology student. Um, I started doing some research in graduate school. Um, funnily enough, uh, I remember one of my mentors telling me to not study extreme violence um, because, you know, it's yeah, just a, fa a fad that will go away. Um, but uh, I, I so then I, I went to Northeastern uh, and met James Allen Fox, um, who is sort of I call him the godfather of of extreme violence research. Um, who, who actually has been on the show uh, in the past as well. Um, and great episode. I think he's he's got a lot of uh, really important insight into into this topic, uh, which which is, uh, you know, yeah, as you sort of alluded to there, unfortunately has not been a fad and yeah. it's something that we're continuing to deal with, but yeah. Yeah, um, and so together with him and another uh, mass violence researcher, Grant Dewey, um, we conducted a three-year study of mass public shootings in the United States from 1976 to 2018, um, where we collected data on the incident, the offender, the victims, um, and produced a number of studies and, uh, and reports um, on that topic. And um, I have been, in the last few years, uh, really scrutinizing Maine's laws, and uh, we have 
as a as a as a state, we've been considering changing the laws or tightening up some restrictions. And um, I've been sort of commenting on um, the state of affairs in Maine. It, it is an interesting state in terms of high rate of gun ownership, really loose gun laws, low crime. Um, and so I remember in 2022, um, we were talking about, uh, I was talking with a couple of outlets about why that, how, how can that be the case? And why haven't we had a mass shooting? And, um, you know, my my assessment was that, you know, there's nothing special about Maine. We're just lucky. We've just been lucky. And, you know, the luck ran out last week. Yeah, unfortunately, this is, uh, this is the first incident uh, that, that would qualify as a mass shooting. You know, under the obviously we get into a lot of definitional discussions around here. And, yeah. And I've had people from from different uh, sides of this question on the sh on the, the show in the past. But. Uh, but your your definition they've used in your research, and I think is more commonly used in, in mm -hmm. sorts of research, is uh, four or more people killed in a single incident in public that isn't related to uh, some other crime like a robbery or or drug deal or something of that nature, right? Yes, that's the definition that we use for mass public shootings. Yeah, we have had I mass mean, shootings in the past, actually mm -hmm. this year, um, but they're they're very rare. But we had you know Maine Maine was a zero domestic, in our database. domestic incidents. Yeah. 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 Because that's the other thing. Uh, if you look at just four or more killed in an incident, um, that most of those are actually going to be uh, domestic incidents where somebody murders their right. family. It's unfortunately, right. I think, more common than people understand. Um, it's much more common. It doesn't, get, it doesn't the same, get the media attention. Yeah. Yeah. But but uh, yeah, as far as as far as uh, a mass public shooting, this was the very first one that mean and it's uh, it's a particularly horrific one because Maine, as you as you mentioned there, doesn't see a lot of murder generally uh, i think it's no. somewhere between 20 and 25 people murdered a year in maine and this was 18 people in one one incident that's mm -hmm. uh, as far as the effect on on the community i'm sure that's just un, unbearable yeah i mean it's not, it's just something that we haven't seen before it's something that um is continuing to shock uh the community um as i said uh, Maine is a is a safe state in terms of you know just gun violence in general. Uh, we do have a slightly elevated rate of suicide compared to other New England states, but um, other directed gun violence is is very very low, and so we just have never experienced anything like this. Yeah, and and uh, to get to the I guess the main focus of of our conversation today, uh, perhaps another layer of um, just uh, unfortunate news here is that it does seem as though this this shooter the suspect in this incident should not have been legally allowed to either obtain or retain the firearms used to uh to kill these people i mean um from what we know and and look there's been a lot of uncertainty on some of these points with public officials saying different things at different times uh and and you know reputable news outlets uh reporting different things but uh, the latest report we have is the hospital and a, a source inside the hospital told the Boston Globe uh, that this is a New York hospital on a, on a base in New York, that the suspect in this case was involuntarily committed for two weeks. That had been the initial report that came out in a police bulletin, but then was disputed by uh, Maine's uh, public safety commissioner and um and also the FBI had said that they didn't have a record of uh, disqualifying in, you know, commitment in their database, in their background check database. So, you know, there's some uncertainty about this. It does 
line up with a lot of the reported details that this would have been involuntarily committed uh, commitment because the suspect had um, was reportedly hearing voices that weren't there. We were accusing him of being a pedophile and so forth, and and that he had threatened to shoot people on his base where he was an army reservist. Um, and then he was taken by police to this this mental health institution. He stayed there for two weeks. That was the initial reporting. The latest reporting from the Boston Globe suggests that uh, this was an involuntary commitment, which should have made him a uh, prohibited person, right? Under under federal law, is that your understanding? Yeah, under federal law, if you have been involuntary involuntarily committed to uh, a mental treatment facility, then um, you are not able to purchase a firearm. Uh, in Maine, if you have been involuntarily committed, you are not able to possess firearms. Now, there's no automatic process that is triggered um, to basically allow law enforcement to collect those weapons. And so there's a little bit of a lack of clarity there about what steps should have been taken. Um, but we yeah. do have the yellow flag law that seems like this would have been sort of a textbook case um, for that law to have been invoked. Um, and then it's unclear exactly why it wasn't in this case. Yeah, let's let's talk. That's the other aspect of this as well. You have the federal prohibition for anyone who's been involuntarily committed um, and they're not supposed to be able to even possess yeah. firearms for the rest of their lives uh, under federal law. But um, and that would be anywhere in the country, of course. But uh, you also have uh, what's been discussed a lot with Maine, which is this. Uh, it was a, sort of a variation on the red flag law. People call it a yellow flag law. It's sort of coll yep. colloquial terms for both of these. I mean, they're, right. they're called uh, with emergency. Extreme risk. Yeah. Extreme, extreme risk, risk protection order. Yeah. Protection orders. Uh, that's that's more technical term for these things. But but Maine's is is a little bit different than most other ones. So that people call it a yellow flag law. But but even under this proposal, to, can you just walk us through how it works and whether this the details that we understand from current reporting would have qualified him uh, or how they would have? Yeah, so the way that our yellow flag law works, it, it is a compromise um, that is um, meant to offer more due process protections um, to individuals than are than is afforded with a red flag law. The red flag laws can be instigated by a family member, for example, and petitioned to the court. Whereas in a yellow flag law situation, only law enforcement um, can petition the court. You know, it's a little bit um, sort of um, just semantics. Yeah, do you think that? Sense. Yeah, do you think that makes a big difference? Because when I, if, if the family members tell the police, they'd like they it. tell the police, and so you know, um, yeah. you, you're kind of skipping over law enforcement in this in in a sense with um, with the red flag laws. There is an additional step where the the law enforcement um, agency has to take the individual into protective custody. So that's kind of a big step. And then they have to basically present the court with um, findings from a mental health uh, professional. Um, and if it is determined that there is a foreseeable threat, uh, foresee a threat in the future, then um, then they are able to sort of temporarily um, dispossess that individual of their firearms for up to a year. Right. Right. And so in your opinion, as somebody who understands this law and the facts in this case, as they've been reported so far, and look, it's still fairly early. Uh, we don't have everything concrete yet, but yeah. which is often the case with these, these incidents and they get all the attention at the very beginning and then people attention dies down and then you get more facts come out later. But, but as we understand it right now, um, he should have been 
qualified for one of these yellow flag orders, right? Yeah, I mean, at the very least, the process seems like it could have been instigated where the, the individual is taken into protective custody and then an assessment is made. Um, there, There's just all kinds, of, as you mentioned, all kinds of reporting. Um, there, there are reports that he had a prescription that he stopped taking. Now, if he was given a prescription, then you would assume that there's some sort of uh, diagnosis. I haven't seen anything that would suggest there was a formal diagnosis, but... Um, all the reports seem to indicate a particular type of uh, of mental illness and psychosis that um, that was present. Either way, with the threats that were um, that were uh, collected by uh, people around him, and then the reports of the mental health deterioration, um, it seems like the, this is a textbook example for the yellow flag law. Now, why wasn't he taken into protective custody? We know that there was um, attempt to locate him. Um, you know, they were given wrong, the wrong address. Police were given the wrong address, and then they found his his house, and he wasn't there. Another time, they went, and he wouldn't answer the door. Um, you know, and so I, we also know that there was an alert put out um, to, to sort of. Um, you know, a missing persons, you know, try to attempt to locate. Um, and so it's unclear whether that is the reason that the yellow flag law wasn't put into effect because they simply couldn't find him. They couldn't come into contact with him. Um, but yeah, those are all factors that um, are in play here. Yeah. And, and then there's also a report that, I mean, this was supposed to be a wellness check too. So I don't, I don't even know if it was, if it would have qualified uh, for a red flag or yellow flag, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, part of that proceeding or not but uh and then of course they there were reports that he that the police had spoken with his with his mm -hmm. family with his brother and that right. the family had said they were going to take his guns exactly um, although there was also a report that the brother said he answers the door the door with, with a, a gun. gun so so uh, you know it's still a little bit jumbled i think yeah, in there as to exactly what happened which is how these things usually go when you're yep. dealing with, uh, you know, re reports from people months after the fact, usually. Um, my, so, but as far as I understand the timeline here, you know, he started going downhill about a year ago into, yep. into this mental health spiral. Um, his his sister-in-law told the Daily Beast that he had uh, been hearing voices, that mm -hmm. they, including at the two locations that right. he attacked, um, or was accused of attacking at least. And, and, and he... Um, I mean, he's on, he's on video, so it's not, you know, uh, preface these things just because that's natural for reporters. Right. But, uh, he was hearing voices. He said people were accusing him of being a pedophile when, when that wasn't actually happening. Um, you know, that that's obviously, and then he was making threats against his, the military installation that he, uh, that he served at as a reservist, um, and then he was committed for that reason, or at least he was, he had made these threats and that concerned military army officials. And they had the police come and take him to this hospital where, according to a, a, a source inside the hospital, told the, the Boston Globe that he had been involuntarily committed. The report was for two weeks, but then he was released. And then from there, he didn't seem to improve, uh, right. at least from what the reporting is, uh, because he followed that up by doing it again with mm -hmm. um, making the same sort of uh, threats co connected to the same sort of uh, false impression that he was hearing these, these voices uh, accusing him of being a pedophile, except the second time he punched one of his friends right. uh, who was, who was also a reservist for some reason that did not result in, in this, another 
trip to the hospital, uh, the mental mm-hmm. health facility. I don't know why we don't have clarity on that. Uh, eventually, <coughs> uh, these these threats were taken seriously to some degree because police stepped up patrols around that base mm-hmm. uh, for a time period. He never showed up or tried to carry out an attack on the base. Um, uh, and and then I guess the sheriff's department back in Maine, because that stuff was all happening in New York, I, I guess. Right. Right. Uh, the sheriff's department in Maine tried to make contact with him, do this well, wellness welfare check, wasn't able to for for one reason or another. Uh, talked to his family, who said they were going to take his firearms and keep them mm-hmm. away from him. Um, and then somehow, uh, nothing was done from there, uh, from that point. And he mm-hmm. obviously ended up using the guns which he bought previously to. Um, to carry out this at- attack and kill 18 people on Moon 13 more. I guess there was also an incident because uh, there's, you know, it's still sort of unclear whether he was really involuntarily committed. We have this report from the hospital, the source of the hospital, that seems to line up with the indication that he was involuntarily committed. That's how it sounds. But, um, and then also he tried to buy a, a sound suppressor or silencer from a gun store in Maine. During, when he filled out his background check, he checked the box that said he'd been committed now that question doesn't say involuntary involuntarily committed for whatever reason Mm -hmm. but uh you know he he obviously was aware of uh that he was he'd been committed um i think that was part of one of the reports that he was very mad at the the army officials who were involved Mm -hmm. in in his commitment um because it it made it so they couldn't own guns because he once the gun store saw this they refused to sell him uh, the sound. So I don't think they ran the background check. Uh, I have not seen that they had. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, because he might've passed it otherwise, because the FBI says he, they didn't have any disqualifying records for him. Right. Uh, right. So it's, there's a whole jumble here, mm-hmm. I guess is the bottom line. Like it sure sounds like somebody who should have been a prohibited person under federal law, right. uh, which means they're not allowed to possess firearms, let alone buy them. And mm-hmm. then who also, should have qualified for Maine's yellow flag law, but, and some people clearly did try to take steps right. when they saw these signs, right? right? He was committed. He was the police, the police, the family tried to, to get uh, the police involved. And still at the end of it, he had the same guns that he had bought legally. Right. And that's what he used to carry out the attack. I don't know. I guess just do you, do you have any way of untangling some of that for, maybe why in theory this should have been one that was prevented um but wasn't in practice yeah i mean it seems like there are several factors at play here from um some sort of administrative failures if he was uh involuntarily committed that should have been reported um and it should have been something that uh would be, would have shown up in his background check but the fbi said um they had no records of that so so there's a failure there um and then the the other failure would be not to invoke the the yellow flag law, and you know Maine has had this law since 2020, and it's been used 81 times. Now most of those um, are sort of imminent threats of suicide. Um, uh, it's been all law enforcement uh, officers are trained um, on this law, but uh, Saginaw County um, Sheriff's Office uh, they have never used it, as far as I know. Um, so it, there, there could be something, you know, culturally uh, that they try to handle things sort of uh, a little bit more informally. Um, you know, it, it is quite um, 
it's quite a process that's involved in terms of taking the individual into protective custody, um, finding a mental health professional, uh, presenting findings to the court. Um, and if you if you have assurances by the family that um, they're going to ensure that he doesn't have access to weapons and that they're going to make sure that he gets evaluated, you know, perhaps that seemed like appropriate at the time. Um, and yet the other thing we don't know is how many of these type of incidents through um, the, the law enforcement uh, officers that were involved here, how many have they dealt with in exactly the same way where the outcome was great, was, you know, something that we don't hear about, which means that it, it worked out. You know, that's yeah, another that, um, issue. That's actually not an uncommon way for the, these sorts of situations to be resolved when somebody's right. not allowed to possess firearms or, they're, or, or if friends or family are concerned about their mental health and what they might do with a firearm. Uh, oftentimes law enforcement will just have uh, somebody else take the guns from them. Uh, right. And uh, we have, we've seen that actually occasionally lead to situations like this. I believe there was a school shooting in uh, St. Louis that, that had similar uh, description to this, where the police took a gun from somebody who was prohibited from having it and get, gave it to another family member. And then that family member gave it back to the person and they carried out uh, shooting. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously risky, but but you're probably right that in 99.9% .9 of the incidents, it, it doesn't lead to, to some sort of uh, violence, let alone mass violence like this. So, uh, you know, those are all good questions, I think. But and then I do wonder, too, about like you have layers here, a lot of different layers of authority. You know, you have the military, which, um, as we saw with the Southern Springs mass shooting, um, is not always good at providing documents, required documents, the documents are supposed to turn over to the federal government in the form of the FBI and the background check system. Um, maybe that's what happened here. You also have uh, the hospital and how that's administered. It's a hospital on a military base. So who exactly has authority over that? Is it the military um, or is it New York, which is another, another layer? New York is not Maine. New York is a separate state from Maine. They're, they're in fact, supposed to, uh, we saw this with Buffalo, uh, the Buffalo shooting, where that suspect had been, that perpetrator was um, taken by police to a mental health facility after um, making comments that indicated he might shoot people at his school. Uh, but then New York has uh, the more stringent red flag law than, uh, than Maine does. But wasn't used in that case. And also his trip to the mental health facility didn't, I guess, qualify as an involuntary commitment, which is another thing that's sort of, I think there can be complications with like what exactly qualifies as involuntarily committed compared to evaluated or voluntarily committed. You know, did he sign, did he sign a paper that he said he was okay with it and that made it voluntary instead of involuntary? It's, it's hard. These things are, um, these little details are are very important in this yeah, case. Yeah, and I think and then, I think you're pointing out these little details. Any one of them could go yeah. wrong and not be clear, and uh, the entire system fails. Yeah, yeah, and that's the that's the hard thing because this is a situation where I think 99.9 percent .9 of people would agree that this guy should not have been allowed to possess firearms. Right. He was hearing voices. He was making threats, um, which uh, is actually not 
an entirely common or it's not it's, it's i think people have the impression that a lot of mass shooters are this, this way that they're yeah mentally most of uh, them are not that they have psychosis are, are not, yeah. do not have a severe mental illness and and most of them have no psychosis at all you know i i don't i hate to speculate um but one thing that i'm intrigued about with the the pedophile comment is you know i've been thinking about where does that come from where does that come from and you know it could be just a pure psychosis um but at the same time so it's an interesting thing my nephew um, works at a store with a person named Robert Card, um, who had been getting a lot of hate um, text and and uh, and contacts. Uh, he's the wrong Robert Card. Turns out he's oh, on the sex offender registry, though. And so, you know, is it possible that people had been confusing this Robert Card, the the shooter, with this other guy and calling him a pedophile? And yeah, maybe maybe somebody did that, and then yeah, with the psychosis of hearing voices that weren't really there, it, it right. Kinda, ramped up yeah like maybe it, it, an incident happened once and then he kept that sure, in his head sure. for a long time so so i've been thinking about that and then there's another sort of uh, anecdote in the police reports about his um loss of hearing um which mm. the officers speculate or they 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 have looked into it in terms of being connected to um mental illness um and so mm. there's a, that's another element that um that i've been pondering yeah maybe if he can't hear properly and he hears something and then his yeah. mind just goes to yeah. Uh, something that's not rational after that right. point. Right. Um, cause yeah, I did. I mean, it does seem like he was hearing things that weren't happening. Right. Uh, that seems confirmed from his, you know, like his sister-in-law yes. has said that and yep. that was part of the reporting for, for the well, all of these incidents really. Yep. And so, but maybe they were based in some sort of misunderstanding yeah. initially. And then that just, but right. you know, a lot of these, one thing that is similar, the psychosis part, the hearing voices part, that's not, uh, most mass shooters don't experience that. Some do. I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to say nobody does. It's not. Right. It's just like he he fled the scene. That's not common for mass shooters either. But right. it has happened. It does. It has happen. happened. Parkland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. A number a number of mass shooters have done that. Um, usually they end up shooting themselves or being caught sure. fairly shortly afterwards. But yeah. But yeah. Uh, it, it it's not common. Uh, but at the same time, uh, what, what is a little more common, at least from my understanding from, you know, the, the violence project. And we had, uh, one of the authors for the violence project, um, on the, the show a while back as well, uh, is, is this spiral, this downward mm-hmm. spiral that, that he's mm-hmm. reported to have been involved, you know, that he's gone through. So like he starts off with relatively minor things happening and there's some triggering events perhaps, but mm-hmm. then he, it just gets worse and worse from there. And continues on, um, and it seems like that's what happened in this case, right? Yeah, absolutely. There are reports that um, he had a particularly contentious uh, breakup in February, I believe, um, and that was when he started hearing voices. Um, and you know, as you mentioned, you know, there's there are these incidents that keep happening. I think his ex-wife and his son went to the police and said, you know, they're concerned. Um, and then you had you've already mentioned the the incidents. Um, in I think it was May and then July in uh, his Army Reserve unit, um, and so it just kept getting worse and worse and worse for him. Um, I think he might have also lost his job. That's that's something that was a little unclear to me because where he, his body was found, they said he used to work there, but I believe he had just taken the job there. So so that could be another thing. You know, we these stressors that that come in the immediate. Um, uh, period before the shootings are are very common and well we, we find that about 84 percent in our in our research 84 percent have experienced some sort of tre- stressor before the shooting yeah yeah and you know it's it just 
one of those things where this is a situation where there were a lot of red flags and people yeah. did try to act on it. Most people, most people involved did try to act on them. And it's just, they didn't, not everyone followed through as much as they should have in order sure. for this to be prevented. That seems to be my yeah. takeaway from it. How, well, I mean, and so, you know, one thing that, that is running through my head is I think it, it's important to to give kudos that people didn't just ignore this and brush it off. You know, if you look at the police reports, if you look at the texts from his his friends in the reserves, you know, they were very concerned. They made sure that the the code in, in terms of uh, the getting into the, the compound was was changed and they made sure that he had no weapons from the reserves. And, you know, they specifically said, we're afraid he's going to commit a mass shooting. Um, and, and his ex-wife, who doesn't necessarily need to get involved, but did, um, you know, his son, you know, these are people are taking risks with family members when you're saying, when you're going to authorities uh, and and basically putting someone's uh, liberty at risk, you know, that's, that's a that's something that is not easy to do. At the same time, you know, it seems like there is a lot of handing off and, you know, and yeah. lack of follow up, which I think, you know, instead of saying the police are to blame and they've they're incompetent, I, I think that we, our system is is broken. We don't have a very clear path forward. What happens? Who should you go to? What will happen? What's the follow up? These things need to be shored up and, and clarified um, if we're going to, to have a more expedited process. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. And I don't even think that should be a controversial thing necessarily. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to say somebody who's been involuntarily committed is prohibited from life from owning guns under federal law. Right. That's an easy thing to say. And it's right. true. Right. Um, the hard thing is to follow through that in right. real life in right. these incidents and ensure that that person doesn't actually have access to firearms anymore. And that yeah. part is very hard. And, and, you know, much as more much difficult. As you can criticize the, I mean, you can, you can criticize the mental health professionals. Why did they release him after mm -hmm. two weeks? Um, you know, obviously he wasn't better. Why wasn't right. he recommitted after the mm -hmm. second incident? And we don't know all the details yet, right. obviously. So maybe there's answers for these things. Uh, but it's, it could also just be that this is very difficult to do, to, to follow through on these things, even when everyone yeah. agrees on them. Um, right. You know, like the police, they they tried to track this guy down. Mm -hmm. It sure seems like they should have tried harder. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they were too placated by the the family members saying they, they were able to take his guns away or, or what have you. Um, right. Maybe they should have done more on that. But it's not an easy thing. You know, confiscating no. someone's firearms, even when uh, society agrees that they shouldn't have them anymore because they're dangerous. Uh, they have a dangerous mental health uh, condition as a threat to themselves or others, like even, even in that situation where, where, you know, you have s support for something like that, uh, it's very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. It's very dangerous to do because that's exactly yeah. the kind of, you know, if, if you're taking someone's guns away because they're a threat to themselves or others, well, that makes them a threat to you as you go to try right. and take their guns away. And right. so, and, and I can understand why a lot of police would, would default to maybe having someone, a family member, a loved one, try sure. to be the one who intervenes. But you know, you also have to follow up and make sure that it actually happens or, mm -hmm. or this could, and, it, and yeah, I mean, people tried, people tried to intervene here. That's one of the saddest parts is that they right, really absolutely. did. There were people warned that this exact thing was going to happen. Now they, mm -hmm. they thought it was going to happen at the military base they right? did, yeah. and it, it didn't happen there. Um, so it, it's just, I think underscores how difficult this can be in, in real life. Um, but at the same time, like how key it is for people to follow through. Because if Absolutely. you don't, this is what this is what can occur.
Yeah, and I think that clarity in the process and ensuring that the, the steps that are required um, to be taken by law enforcement, I think that is a, a lesson that's going to be learned here. You know, Governor Mills has uh, yesterday announced the, uh, the formation of a commission to really thoroughly examine this case. Um, and so I'm assuming that th those types of things will be looked at um, and, and hopefully clarified in the future. Yeah. And look, there might need to be a change to federal law as well. I mean, you yeah. saw this in the wake of Sutherland Springs with Fix Nix, um, where they they tried to make it so that uh, the military branches would actually consistently share their disqualifying records mm -hmm. so that somebody can't. I mean, Sutherland Springs shooter, despite having a litany of disqualifying records while in the military, you know, domestic violence, felony charges, mm -hmm. dishonorable discharge. All of that stuff. He was disqualified five times over, and he mm -hmm. still was able to buy a gun from a store because he passed the background check. You know, if that if that store in Maine hadn't said, "Well, we noticed that you've checked the yeah. the box here," and instead just let him redo it and ran the check, he might have passed, and they might have yeah. sold him that suppressor. I don't know that it would have made much of a difference at that point, um, but. Regardless, like it's the system wasn't there backing uh, these people right. up who were being diligent, right. like the gun store uh, staff. But well, even further than that, uh, if he wanted to get a gun in Maine, he could simply go to a gun show or do a private sale. And there's zero, zero uh, requirement for a background check with those types of sales. Um, so it doesn't matter what the federal system looks like in Maine. You don't need a background check if you do a private sale. Sure. Although you can't sell to somebody that you know or have reason. Exactly. If you know that, yeah. This prohibited person. Um, yeah. And i be interested to, I guess it would be a whole other podcast. On, uh, <laughs> you know, how, how these, most most mass shooters acquire their guns legally because most of them don't have do. uh, yeah. disqualifying records, either because people didn't follow through on right. warning signs um, or they just hadn't had a criminal record up to that point. Um, and, uh, so, but it's, uh, I, I just feel like there's, there, there may be space here for, like you're talking about, uh, reform to the system mm -hmm. itself, mm -hmm. especially in a case that involves so many layers of authority, military, yeah. two different states, the FBI, uh, you know, communication between those groups is obviously difficult. And then obviously trust uh, between law enforcement and, and gun owners um, mm -hmm. in a place like Maine is, is a question too. That would yeah. have to be, uh, you know, uh, overcome or, or you know, uh, addressed directly because that's that's another hindrance too. Is like people just might not, you know, you have to be making changes in ways that uh, people understand and trust in order to continue right. to have support for these sorts of prohibitions that exist. Absolutely, um, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's something where we'll probably need to see more of the details of exactly how this all shook out but it, mm -hmm. it it just feels like an even worse situation because it, it should have been prevented yeah i mean that absolutely makes it um much more of a, a gut punch you know for people who are dealing with this this uh tragedy and and the trauma and then to look back and say we kind of knew we kind of knew that this was something that was was possible and we and we didn't stop it regardless of whose fault it is or if it anyone's if it's anyone's fault it might be the system's fault um we didn't stop it and and we could have and that's that's really really difficult to swallow yeah yeah absolutely um but for people who want to read more about your research uh and follow your work where where can they do that 
So um, my web page at Bates College, um, if you just look up Michael Roque, R-O-C-Q-U-E at Bates College, you'll find links to um, all of the publications. Um, and also reach out to me. Uh, my email address is there, and I'm, I'm happy to send out any of our reports. Um, and so um, we're, we're continuing to look into this. Uh, you know, I've been in touch with, with Jamie. We've been working on a few projects using his other data set on just complete mass shootings, not just mass public shootings. Um, but we're, we're going to continue to, uh, to see what we can do to learn more about these, these attacks and learn more, particularly learn more about what type of interventions or policy approaches might be effective. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think that's a conversation we could probably have again, uh, down the yeah. line here. Obviously, we focus a lot on on policy uh, here at the Reload. So, um, yeah, I've been trying to get onto that. that commission. I've reached out to Governor Mills and I reached out mm -hmm. to her chief of staff, and I said, "Listen, I'm here. I want to be on this commission. I want to be someone who can give you some data. Um, and if and if I'm a successful, it would be wonderful to come back on and talk about you know what that looked like and uh, yeah. and what sort of steps were taken. Um, and I think that would be pretty interesting for people to hear." Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we, we, I would love to do that uh, down the okay. line here. Uh, so let, let me know and keep us up to date. And Absolutely. We'll, we'll look to, to have another conversation in the future as well. Great. Uh, but for now, we're going to head over to our news update. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing pretty good. Can't complain. It's finally starting to warm back up a little bit here in Colorado, which I'm enjoying. We've got like a uh -huh. quick, quick taste of winter last week. We got seven inches of snow here in Denver after uh, nice. a long time of 80 degree weather. So finally getting to back into fall. I was worried there. We weren't even going to get a fall here in Colorado. But. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've gone the opposite way. We're starting to get very cold here in uh, D.C. So um, I don't know. I, I like the cold, though, so it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Uh, you got anything interesting coming up this weekend? Uh, I'm heading up to the mountains, actually. Uh, so my girlfriend and I are going to her parents live up in Keystone, Colorado. Um, so we're going to go head up there. Uh, we were supposed to do that last weekend, but we ended up not having a chance to because of the snow. Uh, mm. So we're going to go up there this weekend, just spend the weekend up there. What about you? Um, I don't think I have any plans, which is nice. Um, yeah, just probably watch football all day on Sunday. They, they've got a London game this week, so. That's right. It, it's a really good one too. I think it's uh, the Chiefs and Chargers. So, and then the Eagles don't play till four. So, I just just stay home and watch football all day. Uh, Not too shabby. Uh, yeah, maybe go to the Range on Saturday, something like that. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it all shakes out. But it's nice to not have to go somewhere. Yeah, because um, I've been super busy for the last several weeks in a row. So. Um, looking forward to that, but what do we got in terms of, uh, news? Yeah. So if we head over to the links in the newsletter, we have, a an interesting story from, uh, the Portland press Herald, which is a local paper in Maine talking about their, one of their U S senators, Angus King, he's the independent Senator from Maine, uh, says he's working on new gun control legislation, uh, in the aftermath of obviously the, the mass shooting that we saw last week, um, which I think is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is Angus King, because of Maine's politics, has been sort of a maverick on gun issues. He's generally tended to, to hew the Democratic Party line, but he's also been willing at times to buck, for example, the David Chipman appointment to the ATF he, he wasn't willing to go along with. So to see him saying he's advocating for gun laws, and then two, the gun laws that he's apparently working on seem interesting. Uh, he was 
asked if he wanted to do an assault weapon ban, and he said no. But then he said he was going to work on a bill to ban what makes assault weapons so deadly, and he didn't really elaborate what that means. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of odd reading that story in his comments because uh, he still opposes the traditional assault weapons ban, like the one that's always uh, floating around in legislation on the Hill. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's significant, but at the same time, it's interesting because he seems to have internalized the, the common critique of assault weapons bans, which is that they're sort of bans on cosmetic features for the most part. Yeah. Um, and that is of course, uh, sort of true, right? I mean, most of the features when you look in a traditional assault weapons ban, uh, are, are things that are at least not <clears throat> part of the functionality of the firearm. Um, now it does start from a base of semi-automatic center fire firearms that can accept attachable magazines is usually the base that you start from. And then, and then it's a feature ban after that, uh, for most assault weapons bans, which is like, you can either have one or, or you, or, or, um, sorry, you either can't have any of these features or you can have one of them is kind of how it goes. And then it lists off things that. Um, a lot of people consider to be more cosmetic than functional, like um, flash suppressors or, you know, it, to be fair, like some of these things are, they have a function usually. It's just not a function that uh, matters that much in the context of especially mass shootings. But uh, like right. barrel shrouds, which are, you know, protect you from burning your hand on, the, on a hot barrel or... Um, you know, uh, pistol grips, which just sort of make the gun more ergonomic. Same thing for telescoping stocks. It's another thing that are commonly, uh, put in as a feature that, that is, uh, could get your gun banned. Um, and so I guess he's, he's taken this critique and said, yeah, that that's true. So now I'm going to ban the things that make the gun more, more deadly, whatever that means. Um, and it's hard to understand what. I guess he, he wouldn't elaborate on it either. So it's, it's hard to understand what he means. Like uh, the fact, so semi-automatic, uh, is that, is that what you're, what he's looking at? Uh, the fact that the gun that, you know, ARs or AKs are semi-automatics, uh, the civilian versions. Um, is it the, uh, yeah, like the detachable magazine aspect of it? I mean, again, these are things that are already kind of in the assault weapons bands to begin with. Like that's where they start. Um, so, you know, I don't know. It's, it's kind of odd because it's like, all right, well, so are you going to go to an even bigger ban then? You're just, right. you're not just going to ban semi-automatic firearms with detachable magazines that have these certain features. You're just going to ban them all. Is that, and it, it just seems like he doesn't really have a, a clear idea of what he wants to do. He just has heard this critique before and is like, yeah, that's true. So I'm going to, go after the deadly features well, what are the deadly features just the right. basic function of the firearm the caliber ammunition like what is it that he's going to go after because i think you run into a lot of problems when, on any of those paths uh right so because which get you to likely an even larger uh gun ban than the one you're opposed to right uh, but it, but i guess I, we'll I, have to see i would say i think that's a good point it almost seems like 
he's trying to be attentive to the, the mood that usually follows mass shootings, the need to do something, but also internalizing, as you said, the gun rights critique, because Maine does have such a strong gun rights culture in their electorate. And he's trying to have it both ways, and it ends up creating something that, at least to this point, seems a little incoherent. But as you said, it remains to be seen. Um, yeah, yep. uh, but this is the problem you run into. With the, like if you're, uh, especially if you have any concern at all about gun owners, um, because yes, the gun, the gun, the pro-gun side, the critique of assault weapons bans is often that they're, uh, what they're trying to accomplish is just to get rid of guns that look scary to, to, to uh, advocates of the bans, right? Uh, that's sort of the common critique that you hear. They're trying to ban guns that look like AR-15s or they look like AK-4s or they look like uh, these military weapons, but but the critique is that they don't it doesn't actually do anything to change the functionality that there's still plenty of firearms you can buy that have the same basic functionality as an AR-15 that just don't look like it. It's obviously the the I think the golden example of that is like the Ruger Mini 14 and Mini 30 that which are semi-automatic uh, rifles with tactical magazines that uh, can come chambered in 556 or 223 like they are and so it's functionality wise they're very similar but it's a woodstock gun that doesn't have a lot of the what people call cosmetic features at least you might call them ergonomic features or whatever uh to it and so it, it, it usually is legal in states that have bans on ar-15s and, and similar guns so um but at the same time, I don't think that that critique is meant to be, well, you should just try and ban all semi-automatic guns, right? That that would be um, a far more uh, expansive ban that affects way more uh, people in theory, at least. Um, and so I don't know if that's what he's trying to get to or he just doesn't really understand what he's trying to do, honestly, is, is more what it seems, but. Right. But perhaps he's just gone. Maybe he is going down the path of, I I just want to ban everything that is semi-automatic or fires these rifle cartridges or, or what have you. Because uh, not that any of that I think would uh, completely eliminate mass shootings. Anyway, you've seen mass shootings carried out with all sorts of of firearms, whether it's bolt-action rifles, pump-action shotguns, um, everything. Uh, caliber wise that you could think of has been used in these sorts of attacks. It's really not uh, what the main issue is, honestly, um, because when you're shooting a bunch of defenseless people at short range, it doesn't really matter that you're using an AR-15 or uh, a pump action 12 gauge or something like that's um, there, there's very little difference in that scenario because of the circumstances it's just you're not going up against an armed you know prepared person uh who's so it, i don't know i don't know we'll see where he comes down i guess or, or if he elaborates on this didn't susan collins the republican from maine she she still opposes the assault weapons ban but she had uh, interesting comments as well right I was going to say it's interesting because it's you know beyond the specific policy that he wanted it, it's evidence of sort of maybe a temporary or possibly more lasting political shift that we're seeing with politicians in yeah. Maine. Because as you point out, uh, Collins was quoted as saying that she supports a, a high capacity magazine ban, for example, which is a big stand for a, a Republican to take. Um, yeah, I don't remember see, if she's done that before. She's, she I don't either. assault weapons yeah. bans. Um, but I, I don't know if she's been out in favor of 
uh, magazine limits before. I'm not sure either. You know, she certainly has the reputation as sort of a swing Republican. Um, so it's, I mean, it's possible that maybe she has in the past, but it, it's certainly notable in this context with her joining King and calling for some sort of gun law. You saw Jared Golden in the House, who is a, a considered a moderate Democrat in the House that has voted against assault weapon bans in the past. Now he says he supports an assault weapon ban. Yeah. So you're at least seeing some sort of temporary shift, uh, at least on the, the politics from Maine's congressional delegation. Yeah, yeah, you certainly are. Um, and this was the first, as we mentioned in the, the main interview, this is the first mass shooting, um, uh, public mass shooting uh, in Maine. So um, you, you should expect to see some political fallout from that, I would think, especially given the context that Maine is, it doesn't usually see a lot of murder uh, right. per year. This one attack is almost going to double their their uh, murder rate for the year uh, uh, at the end of it. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll look for the political fall. I will say that they're kind of all over the place. It seems like as King is talking about doing his own new policy. Um, Collins is talking about uh, magazine limits and, and Golden's talking about a regular assault weapons ban. So um, we'll see if that coalesces into anything or not. Yeah, it's tough to say. Uh, but the next link we wanted to talk about was uh, some interesting comments from the current ATF director, Steve Dettelbach, he did a, an event at Harvard's Institute of Politics uh, last week where he made a public call for an assault weapon ban and universal background checks, which is interesting to see from a sitting head of the uh, agency that regulates firearms. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I've seen an ATF director do that before, go out and call for new gun restrictions uh, to be passed through Congress. Uh, it's really not usually what their role is supposed to be. Um, of course, I guess that was the byproduct of what President Biden was trying to do with, with the ATF director. It was clearly his goal to uh, politicize that position to a greater degree than it had been in the past. You know, Obviously, it's been a controversial. The agency itself is controversial um, and has been for since at least Waco, uh, if not well before that, um, because it regulates a very uh, polarizing industry but um and and it does it in a way that lends itself to criticism a lot of times to be fairly to be quite honest with the you know how the atf tends to operate um not that they're the only federal agency that acts that way but uh you know you usually don't see the director come out and say congress should pass these these new gun bans that i want uh or whatever it's it's just not how that job is usually handled um but President Biden first, uh, as you mentioned uh, just a moment ago, he he nominated uh, D David Shipman, who was extremely controversial. He was literally a paid gun control activist at the time that he was nominated. Um, he failed to get through because he was uh, probably one of the most bombastic gun control activists uh, in the country at the time. And um, uh, so that even though Democrats controlled the Senate at the time, um, and I mean, obviously they still do, but, uh, you know, he wasn't able to get him through. And so he, he picked Dettelbach as the backup plan. And, you know, Dettelbach is kind of a mil more milquetoast version of Chipman, right? I mean, he, he, Dettelbach ran for Ohio attorney general as a Democrat, um, and he supported assault weapons bans at when he was doing that. So, you know, his position hasn't changed. It's just, uh, um, unusual and 
probably not great for the institution <clears throat> that he's out there advocating for uh, a very controversial policy, one that has actually become less popular over the last couple of years, and one that uh, <clears throat> one of the leading one of the two parties in Congress is clearly completely opposed to. So uh, I don't know. Interesting to see. Yeah, I'd say certainly don't traditionally hear heads of agencies actively lobbying for legislation from Congress. You know, typically it's their job to take whatever Congress passes and then, you know, as a neutral point of view, just execute it. But, yeah, you know, our political culture has changed over the last few years. So, uh, like you said, it's just it's just noteworthy to see. Yeah, you know, it's part and it's part of the administration's approach to the gun industry, yeah. which is an extremely hostile one, much more so. Certainly. Than- in previous administrations, even other democratic administrations, this is, you know, this goes along with the zero tolerance policy that's led to a huge uptick in revoking licenses. I mean, a lot of this stuff is just, um, the Biden administration doing exactly what, uh, his allies in the gun control movement want him to do. I mean, he's being as aggressive as he possibly can, uh, against the gun industry, which is, uh, um, clearly a political strategy on his part to, uh, appease this this voting block um whether that's the right strategy is is obviously up for up for debate um I, biden has gotten very poor numbers on how he's handled gun policy as president but i mean he's just kind of at this point gotten bad numbers on how he's handled almost everything he's just very unpopular generally but um so i don't you know how much of that is because people are paying attention to what the atf director is saying i, I don't know but but, um, you know, it, it's it's certainly a, a deliberate policy. It's not an accident that somebody got appointed ATF director who's openly advocating for new gun restrictions while being director. Um, that that's all my only point here is that this was this is not like some rogue thing that he's doing. This is this is why he was appointed. Right. No, that's a good point. Um We'll move on to some of the stories we reported this week. You had an interesting piece about uh, a new federal ruling on California's attempt to restrict gun shows on public lands. Uh, And we had a district judge that said that's not going to fly if you want to tell us what happened with that case. Yeah, so um, the the law was was blocked with a preliminary injunction. So California can't enforce this law that makes it effectively impossible to have a gun show on public land. even though that had been the practice for a very long time in California and of course in lots of other states. Um, you know, he found that it both violated the the second amendment and the first amendment um, because, you know, I think in part because California has, um, as you might expect, some fairly novel rules about how gun shows work. Um, you know, for one, California has that 10 day waiting period on gun sales. So, um, you can't actually buy a gun at a gun show in the sense that, you know, you can't take it home with you. You can't walk out the door with it, even if you pass the, pass the background check and all that stuff, um, which, of course, they have universal background checks. So you also can't do uh, private sales in the without going through a licensed dealer, without having the transfer go through a licensed dealer. So, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the a gun show in California is different than one in like Virginia or Colorado even. Um, or a number of other states, most other states, really, uh, because you're kind of, uh, it's almost like an online sale. Like if you went to buy a gun from Bud's Gun Shop or something online, uh, you don't, the gun doesn't get shipped directly to you, right? It goes to a, 
a licensed dealer first and you have to go pick it up. So you're kind of just negotiating on price and you're paying for the gun, but you're not receiving it yet. You have So at a California gun show, you're kind of just negotiating a contract essentially. Um, and then you pick up the actual gun 10 days later at a physical store. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was sort of part of the first amendment argument about this, that you're not really banning gun sales or any, because they're not actually really happening at this, the show, you're more banning the negotiation for a gun sale. Anyway, that's kind of in the weeds, but that's how it got to the first amendment aspect. And it was targeted, right? This is specifically about this particular kind of, uh, of speech, you know, uh, gun related speech, uh, gun commerce. Um, and then of course, uh, he also found that the judge in this case, judge Holcomb found that the second amendment was violated here too, because there just isn't a historical tradition of, um, barring gun shows or gun sales on public lands. Uh, and so, you know, he said that violates the second amendment under the Bruin test. And, um, you know, it was interesting to me though, uh, that, you know, we got comment from Chuck Michelle, who's the president of the California rifle and pistol association. And, uh, they were, they were one of the plaintiffs in this case, along with, you know, second amendment foundation. I think the, uh, Asian American, uh, Pacific, uh, gun, gun association was also involved in this, uh, as well as, uh, a couple of, uh, I think gun owners of California too. So it was a, it was a number of, of gun rights groups plus, you know, uh, gun show organizers that got involved in, in this. But Chuck Michelle's comments were interesting because he was, he was, you know, his argument is that California is doing this in order to try and um, limit gun culture generally, that they don't, they don't want people to be able to gather together uh, and discuss guns in this way. Uh, and sell firearms, but mainly like the the communal aspect of it is what the, his argument is that they're trying to eliminate that to make gun ownership less appealing to future generations, basically, that they're not exposed to, uh, you know, the community of gun owners getting together in this way. And that along with lots of other obvious, uh, obviously uh, restrictions that they put in place, attempting to root out gun culture in California, he called it culture side. And so he said this was, you know, a win in, in the fight against that. And I, I thought that was an interesting way of, of looking at it at the, at the very least. Yeah, no, that's uh, certainly was one of my big takeaways when I read your story for the first time, too, because, you know, obviously, you know, we've seen rulings like this before and in, in various localities, especially attempts to ban gun shows. But to hear his take on this as, like you said, you know, coining the term culture side, but just California making it as difficult as possible for you know, what is, you know, whether or not the politicians there like it, a legal commercial activity, it's a protected constitutional right to engage in, right. in gun commerce and to, to purchase guns, but just making it as onerous and as difficult and as cumbersome as possible to even do that. I think it's an, an interesting, obviously it's coming from a, a pro-gun point of view, but it's certainly yeah. an interesting uh, take uh, on what they're doing. Yeah. And from the other end, you had uh, Senator Dave Min, who uh, was the guy who, who backed this as a Democrat, uh, in in California, and he he argued, uh, you know, that the that the the ban should be okay, and that um, he was actually cited a number of times in the ruling because he he was specifically talking about how this was a novel law and they're the first in the nation, and 
uh, under the Bruin test that that's actually a huge negative because the whole concept is that your gun regulations have to be rooted in American tradition in order to be uh, uh, compatible with the Second Amendment. So uh, but he, you know, he responded to the ruling and he his claim was, you know, that essentially uh, it doesn't make sense because it's public property and people voted for the lawmakers. And so uh, they should be able to administer the, this property the way they want. And, you know, they sh- uh, it's akin to forcing them to hold like book burning events or or flag burning events or so- something of that nature. And uh, he, porn con- he compared it to con- pornography, right? Yeah, right. Porn conventions on public property. Uh, so, you know, he, his, his point, I guess, was, you know, this is public property. It should be able to be uh, administered by the, rep- the, the elected representatives of of a state. So. Yeah, that was the countervailing view um, <clears throat> on this. And, and you know, um, you also had the governor, of course, Newsom, come out and uh, attack the judge as an extremist uh, beholden to the gun lobby, uh, which actually Chuck Michelle had, had mocked. He, he actually had mocked this before Newsom sent his comments, his office sent his comments to, to us. It's kind of... Um, because I guess Newsom's response was fairly predictable and that he's done this before. That's how he's reacted to other rulings against California's gun laws is just to attack the, the judges themselves. Um, <clears throat> and, and so Chuck Michelle had, had kind of mocked him and said that his, uh, you know, his, his list of judges that he thinks are uh, ideologues is getting longer and longer. Um, and so, yeah, I thought that was, and that was kind of, it was kind of funny just to see the timing of that, to be honest with you, because that is exactly how Governor Newsom responded. Um, yeah. And, you know, Governor Newsom just doesn't obviously has a very strong disagreement with the judicial philosophy of not just these judges, but the Supreme Court as well. Um, and you've seen and he's actively trying to partially repeal the Second Amendment, uh, which is which is a movement that has not really gone anywhere uh, since he announced that earlier this year, but, you know, his views are, are pretty, pretty well known at this point. Right. Um, but, uh, we also, speaking of gun commerce, by the way, we had a couple stories, uh, just to wrap this up on, uh, gun sales this week. Uh, the first one was Ruger, right? Ruger had their earnings report come in and, uh, it was not good. Uh, you know, it was it was uh, another quarter where they saw a year to year over year decline. Um, I think their sales their sales were down. This is thirteen percent. Yeah, and I think it's what the eighth quarter in a row, maybe ninth, where they've seen declines. So uh, their their numbers are uh, still weak as the industry is trying to find its new floor after the twenty twenty surge. Right. You had this huge surge of gun buying in 2020 after the pandemic and the riots and everything else that was going on in the election. Um, <clears throat> you know, so much motivation for people to go out and buy guns. And, uh, and millions of Americans did for the first time. But the industry since that point has seen uh, sales continue to come down. And, the, you know, this is the nature of the industry, right? It's a cyclical industry. And, it's both cyclical, it's seasonal and cyclical, I guess you would be the right way of looking at it. Because in a given year, you're going to have more sales in 
the fall and the spring than you are in the summer or uh, the middle of winter, right? And so um, at the same time, you also see sales move in a cycle where you have a spike and then a decline, a spike and decline. But generally speaking, after each spike, the, the new floor that you hit will be higher than the old one, right? They'll be higher than the highs that you saw in the, the previous cycle. And so that's what we've been looking for this time around. And there've been a couple of times where it was like, oh, maybe this is it, maybe that's it. Um, and Ruger at least has not shown that they've hit their floor yet. Uh, now there's only two publicly traded gun companies, right? There's Ruger and then uh, there's uh, Smith and Wesson. And um, <clears throat> so Ruger right now is not showing good numbers yet. Uh, now, obviously the, the quarter ended, I think back in September for them. So you're not seeing the last little bit here and that's relevant for two reasons. Uh, <clears throat> one, Ru Smith and Wesson has posted its first increase in net sales in eight quarters that we wrote about this back in September. So they have started to see uh, perhaps their, their floor kick in. Right. And right. <clears throat> the other thing this is another story that we just wrote is that uh, background checks are now indicating at least for October, which we just got those numbers in that sales have rebounded. Um, this is October saw an 8% increase in sales over the previous October. So October 2023 saw uh, more background checks, more gun sale related background checks than October 2022. Um, now we use the FBI's background check numbers as an analog for gun sales because they're the best barometer that we have. There's no there isn't a national gun registry. There's, the ATF doesn't track sales. They track, you know, manufacturing, how many guns are made, but they don't track individual sales. That would be illegal under federal law. You can't have a national registry under federal law. So uh, the closest thing we have is the background check system where <clears throat> because all new gun sales have to go through licensed dealers and licensed dealers have to perform background checks, you get a pretty good barometer of how many sales there are on a, you know, a, a national scale or even on a state scale. But, <clears throat> you know, it's not a perfect one-to-one. -one. Excuse me, I'm, I'm all stuck. <clears throat> oh my gosh. Um, that's better. Uh, so <laughs> just to wrap it up, the, the NICS numbers, the National Instant Criminal Background Check System numbers, the FBI publishes every month are the closest thing we have to sort of sales numbers in the industry. And uh, and of course, the raw numbers aren't super reliable because they also include uh, permit checks. And some states will actually recheck all of their gun permits. They're uh, usually gun carry permits, but also FOID, like firearm owner identification card permits. Um, every month, Illinois does that. So you have hundreds of thousands of those checks that aren't actual gun sales and they come through every month. And, and so the number, the raw numbers are pretty disconnected from gun sales at this point, but the industry, the national shooting sports foundation does an analysis that removes all the permit checks or at least as many as, as they can and makes some adjustments based on like you can buy a, a gun with a permit check as well in some States instead of a, a sales check. Um, so they try to factor that in. 
Um, and anyway, the, those numbers, I think, are the most reliable barometer of, of gun sales. And gun sales were up in October. Uh, that's only the third month this year where you've seen a year-to-year increase. And the other two were more like a, it was flat. This month, you saw an 8% increase. That's that's significant. And it makes it the, th- the best, uh, the third best October on record, third behind 2020 and 2021. Um, so better than any year before 2020. And that's um, that's significant, I think, for uh, the first really strong indication that we've had that this is the new the new floor is arriving for the industry. Uh, you had this, the Smith and Wesson sales numbers, and you had the the October background check numbers, uh, and those are both positive signs. But at the same time, Ruger still hasn't seen that hit their their numbers yet. Now that's could just be because the the quarter ended before you got to October and maybe this next quarter will be better, but um, definitely some interesting news there. Cause we've been, you know, anyone who's been following the reload for a while knows we, we talk about that. Uh, this, this uh, search for a new floor in the gun industry a lot, because, you know, you had these millions of new gun owners. So your sales levels should be higher than before 2020. And, uh, yeah, they have remained higher, but they've continually slipped a little bit every every year. Um, right. And and so they can't if they keep slipping and you get back down to pre twenty twenty levels. I think that that's an indication that something has gone wrong with the industry because they weren't able to capitalize on all these people who bought guns for the first time. Into they, have, they haven't been able to you know engage them, um, or they've lost people in other ways. You know, it just wouldn't make any sense. Um, the only the only thing that would make sense is if you're if you're having sales numbers that are below your pre spike um, numbers, that then you're not something you did something wrong because there should be just a new level of customer uh, a new customer base because of, of what happened. So um, you know that that's what I that's what I've been watching for. And I think this is perhaps the first time we're seeing some strong evidence that, uh, but it, but it's one of those things where it has to, it, you know, just because October had a good month doesn't necessarily mean that that's the start of a trend. You know, that's one month, right? So, I don't know, we'll have to keep we'll have to keep watching uh, for that, right? Yeah, certainly, and uh, the. Ruger CEO made a good point that California has sort of opened up as a potential new market yeah. because of the uh, handgun roster restrictions, micro stamping being enjoined. So, you know, potentially this could be a little bit of a boon to the gun industry going forward to kind of counteract some of the decreases we've been seeing, because now suddenly a, a bunch of new handgun models are, are going to be available in the largest state in the country. Um, so that could potentially be something that worth keeping an eye on and, and could be a buffer for the industry going forward. Yeah, actually, I think we might be worthwhile reading out what the what they say they're going to start selling in California because I, I think this might be news. You know, I, I know that the uh, the P three sixty five was just added to the roster in California. So um, as we reported on a while back, uh, the micro stamping, well, the, the whole uh, roster situation in California was was struck down as unconstitutional. Um, but when the state went to appeal that. They gave up on part of it. They gave up on the micro stamping aspect, which is uh, sort of the theoretical aspect. The, the main reason that there aren't more guns on California's handgun roster is that micro stamping requirement, because no no gun in the world 
would meet that requirement. It's not a real production technology. Um, and so when, when they gave up on that, it opened up the door for a lot more companies to start adding some of their newer handguns to the California roster. So SIG has done it with the 365 now. Um, and it, here's the list that Ruger is, says they're going to they're gonna bring to the rosters for anyone in California who's wondering. Um, the Mark IV, uh, which is a 22 pistol. You have the SR-22, which is another 22 pistol. The LCP and the Max 9. So... Uh, they're, they're bringing a lot more of their uh, more recent handguns to market now in, in California because uh, they can add the features like a magazine disconnect and a loaded chamber indicator to those guns in order to get them on the California market. So that's the the ruling was in, was uh, was stayed, by the way. That So even though California gave up on the micro stamping, you still have to comply with the the other the two other requirements, which is the magazine disconnect and the, the loaded chamber indicator, but, um, you know, and they have a very specific rules about the loaded chamber indicator that are different from what most other handguns have as for that feature. But regardless, uh, that, that, I think that actually might be some news for people there. Uh, the, they actually listed out the, the, the models that they're going to bring to, to the California market, but, yeah, we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on it and see if this, I mean, these are strong signs, but they're not, it's not a guarantee that that's where things are going to end up. Uh, 2023 is still, I believe, on pace to be a, uh, a slower year for gun sales than 2022 was. So it'll have to have a pretty strong end of the year to get over that hump. Uh, you know, I, and part of it is, I think, and Ruger talked about this a little bit too, you're, there's a lot of good deals now. There's a lot of sales, uh, a lot of discounts on firearms. So, um, you know, perhaps that is starting to stimulate the market a bit more. At this point, people, uh, you know, maybe you bought your first gun and then you were like, I don't want to spend a thousand dollars to pick up a new handgun or, or I don't want to spend so much money on ammunition, a dollar round for nine millimeter or whatever the crazy prices were at the peaks. And so now that the prices are coming back down and you can get guns more reasonably, you know, maybe people are starting to get back into that market uh, again. But we will keep an eye on it because, uh, you know, I think it's an important story and it's it'll say a lot about how those new gun owners have really panned out. Um, There's a lot of high hopes in the industry and in the gun rights movement for, for those folks. And, uh, you know, we're still, we're still looking at where, where that has all ended up and we're going to continue to do that, but that's all we've got for this week. So um, thank you guys for tuning in. If you like the show, please give us a, a rating on your, whatever app you're listening to this on and uh, give us a like on YouTube, uh, leave a comment, um, share this with people you think might enjoy it. And uh, if you want to support our reporting, of course, you can head over to reload.com and pick up a membership today. You'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and stories that you won't find anywhere else. And you'll get an access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. So uh, until next time, next week, really, <laughs> um, uh, we will see you guys.